yeah. Let's talk about making love. No, not that kind of making love. Did you know that the average person only spends half a percent of their life having sex? Here at Making Love Today, we learn from couples about what they do with the other 99.5% of their time to create meaningful, deeply fulfilling, and long-lasting relationships. So listen up as we hear what our guest couples do outside the bedroom to make their love work. And now, here's your host, Patrick Perkins. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Making Love Today. Back again after a longer hiatus than we expected, but here we are again to share with you more great couples doing great things in their relationship. I am your host, Patrick Perkins, here to share with you another amazing couple. For today's couple, we're going to be hearing from Brian and Farina. Farina is a university professor, and Brian is primarily a stay-at-home dad. As Brian is white and Farina is Native American, they shared with us some great examples of how cultures can blend and mix in a relationship and in a marriage. With that said, here's Brian and Farina. Could you tell me about the story of how you got together? Both of us are from Maryland, but we did not know each other. Farina attended the same congregation as my grandparents in church. We met at a church function at a New Year's Eve party, and after about a year or so, we decided that we liked each other. Yeah, I was on break. I was going to BYU for school. It was a singles dance, and I went there, and my cousin was there, and Brian and my cousin went and sat by each other, and I went to see my cousin, and he introduced us. And he eventually asked for my number because he was going to BYU He was just there for the holiday as well. And so we actually dated mostly in Utah, but we would come back during the holidays to Maryland. At first, I thought of Brian only as a friend, that he was really nice guy, but he knew. But then we stayed friends over the year or so and eventually started to date more seriously. That's how we met and got to know each other. So Brian, at that point, did you think of Farina as only a friend? I would say that's more on her end. She had a lot of other guys she was interested in. I just kind of laid off for about 11 months or so. (laughs) So having patience went out in the end. Yeah, I guess so. It worked out really well. I think that it's just very ironic that throughout our entire childhoods, we were only 20 minutes drive apart. Yeah, we probably were in the same room at some point when we were teenagers. We knew a lot of the same people. I knew his grandparents since I was in grade school, and our families knew of each other. It's just a peculiar situation for us, knowing that she was there the whole time. Mm -hmm. Do you think that common connection really helped you guys to connect with one another? Absolutely. It's very nice to have a frame of reference. A lot of the cultural boundaries that relationships have because they grew up in just different worlds, that didn't exist with us. We had so much in common. (laughs) But we had a lot of differences, too. My childhood, I lived between very different spaces and areas. Some of my early upbringing on the Navajo reservation, which is very rural and predominantly Navajo community, as I am Navajo and 
I didn't really have any relatives, didn't really think of myself of coming from Maryland. I still don't, even though I've lived there the longest than I have anywhere else. But I think what it really gave a common ground for us, a very diverse place. We were in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And so growing up, we both had good friends from throughout the world. We are all in that space, Montgomery County, Maryland. Of course, there's differences along socioeconomic class and different dynamics there and also Brian's own family and and their particular cultural and idiosyncrasies, my own too. That's something we have been adjusting to and connecting with. But I think being familiar with similar places and having a fondness of them and appreciation for them and especially, as I said, that exposure to so many different peoples and places through them, being aware of the world and conscious of it and connected with it. So it sounds like coming from such a diverse area helped you to connect despite the differences that you did have. But it does sound like there are adjustments that you've had to make. Could you be a little bit more specific on what that adjustment process has looked like? Something about Montgomery County is that we're so open-minded almost to a fault. To give some context, I grew up learning that if there's somebody who doesn't look like me, the natural instinct is, who are you? What are you? Where are you from? But what I was taught from my community is just hold on, get to know the person first as an individual. And a lot of those details will come out if you're really that interested. And as kind of a a result of that, I found that most of the diverse people that I knew were from China. They were from Korea, from uh, the Middle East, especially Iran. But uh, I didn't really know any Native Americans. It wasn't until Mm -hmm. high school, my best friend came out to me and said he was Native American. And I was just baffled, jaw dropped. I said, what are are you talking about? I felt as though even though Native Americans were around us in the D.C. area, they were often very quiet about their identity, at least those that I encountered. And so I came into the relationship knowing almost nothing about Native Americans. That was, to some extent, a disadvantage. Like I said, I had a very mixed kind of childhood because I was conscious and aware of my years growing up on the Navajo Nation. And I knew my family and we go visit them. Both my parents are first generation college students. They both came from real hard circumstances socioeconomically and especially my dad He went to an Indian boarding school when he was little, and there was a lot of poverty in the family in a way that I think most, when people think of the United States, they see it as this country of limitless wealth and opportunity. As a child, I was exposed to seeing families live in areas where they don't have access to electricity, to water, basic human needs, living with dirt floors. And I didn't know how to make sense of that. And my parents weren't really explaining it explicitly to me, or maybe I just couldn't grasp that. Whereas Brian, he had this upbringing where I don't think he really knew people lived like that. Like he said, he didn't really understand 
Native history, Native culture. And I know because growing up in going to school and living in the Maryland, D.C. area, what little we're taught in schools about Native Americans and that history I had to basically start my own little research of understanding Navajo Nation, my own heritage, and I'm still learning so much, even as a PhD, you know, focused on Native American studies and history. So I had a lot of ignorance because that's the system. It, it, it doesn't prioritize learning that. You're fed stereotypes of Pocahontas, Saving John Smith, and Thanksgiving myth of pilgrims having a nice dinner and everything nice with uh, Indians and never knowing the name of the people, you know, Wampanoag and not thinking about even the indigenous lands of Maryland or how people are stolen from that. So as I was coming of age, if you will, it really came at BYU that when I met Brian, I was reconnecting with my family in a different way of connecting with my elders and learning questions to ask about these histories, these legacies, our heritage. And when I was meeting Brian, that actually was a big turnoff for me as I thought, well, he won't ever understand this. He's a white man from a very privileged family. His grandfather, he was a congressman, a representative of Utah. They lived in a nice house in Maryland. And I just thought, well, he's not going to understand this. And I need someone who will understand and help support me. My life goal was to really help Native people. And I wanted to raise my family with that strong connection. When we first got together, I'd say even within just the first month, she said, if this relationship's going to work, I'm going to take you to the reservation. And because BYU was about a seven-hour drive from uh, her family's home in uh, New Mexico, she says that she was Navajo, but I don't think she really thought that I believed her. She's like, I'm going to show you. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So we went and saw her, her Uncle Albert, who is a code talker. And it was so important for her to show me her family to introduce me to the family down there, which is a little bit intimidating since we hadn't really been together very long. (laughs) I didn't know we were at the let's meet the family stage yet, but I had never been to New Mexico, so I was happy to agree to it. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to meet her family. It was hard at first and shaky made me hesitant in the relationship because even when my uncle met him, my uncle had a lot of preconceptions about him and my uncle didn't like him, but the other family did. They embraced him and enjoyed him. But my uncle said, I don't know about this guy. And then my uncle came to visit and speak at BYU and Brian was being very helpful, supportive in any way he could. Even when I first met him, I signed him up to make fry bread at BYU BYU American Indian powwow, the cedar tree powwow that's held annually. And I don't even think you'd heard of fry bread before. I I never heard of fry (laughs) bread. I probably made a hundred fry breads before I actually got to taste one. Yeah, (laughs) and that's a big native food. And anyway, my uncle came and I told Brian, I said, go get uncle some fry bread. And he went and he got him fry bread. And my uncle was very upset because he didn't get him utensils like a fork. 
And Brian said they were out of them. And my uncle said, what does he think I am? An Indian who can't eat with a fork or something. And these kind of misunderstandings. And Brian didn't really understand. Yeah, that is a rude thing to do to a native elder. You have to go find that fork or they will assume you're judging them. So he apologized and he just did his best to learn and grow from that. And I have to admit, I do things to kind of test him. Like that, like one time he wanted to go to a volleyball game and Ramilla Cody, who's this big Navajo singer and activist, was in town and I really wanted to go see her. And I just kind of canceled on him, said, nope, I want to go do this. And Brian said, well, I want to be with you. So I want to go with you to that. And I thought he wouldn't and that he wouldn't understand why it mattered to me or he wouldn't be supportive to that, but he was and he came. And so I kept trying to shake him off in these ways and he, <laughs> he kept learning and growing. I have a very non-judgmental family, just wants to learn. And I felt like at the end of the day, our relationship was between each other, that these dates that we went on were not really about what we were seeing. It was about who we were and what we were developing together. Maybe I had a little bit of resentment at the time of how sudden the change was. But at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. I just felt like wanted to learn something new. Were you eventually able to win over Uncle Albert? Yes. So much to the point where he came to speak and he needed a host family. He was comfortable enough to accept my family's offer. He was comfortable enough with me to spend a couple nights with my sister. And I think that things worked out pretty well. I absolutely adore and loved Albert and the other family. She comes from an amazing family who, of course, live a very different lifestyle and a way of life because they speak a different language than I do. They eat different foods than I had ever heard of. But what I also have found is that a lot of our food tastes are very compatible. I've actually found New Mexico food to be some of the best cuisine in America. Mm-hmm. But uh, regardless of the food... And Dene food. Yeah, Dene food. He now cooks yeah. some really good blue corn mush and their <laughs> <Yeah>. food. <laughs> That's true. I've, I've learned from them. And I think that they learned from me too. I think it's very much a very close relationship. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually really beautiful. My family, because I was in a lot of ways an outsider and balancing what does it mean to be mixed ancestry as Diné and white settler, European American descent who grew up mostly in a suburban next to a big metropole area. And then Brian, who also had similar experiences with that suburbia DC metro area, but he had his ties and connections to the American West. He was born in Salt Lake and Mm -hmm. had a lot of family ties there too. Yeah, I have a lot of family in Utah. We were sort of insider outsiders in DC because our family had been in DC for a hundred something years, but I have even more family in Utah and that always brought us to uh, the West. Figuring out where's home. And for me, it was reconnecting with family who I had been geographically in many ways separated from and doing that with Brian and, and both feeling that embrace and love and appreciation of family, family that had an upbringing very different from me and him making 
those ties. I believe that a couple has so much beyond them. It's about building the bridges of peoples and having families and having that family focus. And so both of us, we try our best to sustain those ties. It's amazing that he's supportive even to, you know, in a Euro-American idea would be extended family, but it's so close-knit and tied that he's doing a lot for my cousin's children and trying to support them where he can and where we can. And they recognize that when he says they speak different language, speak different food, there's more in common than not. And Obviously, we're all different. Even he and I are very different. A lot of people, we're all our own person. But it's finding where we complement each other, where we support each other, what we can do. Going back a little bit, Brian, you never did talk about what your impression was from that first trip down to Navajo Nation. I'd like to hear your experience was. Yeah, I definitely found family who lived differently than I was used to. But What I learned from my own parents, especially my mother, is don't judge and listen. And my mom was also always, and still is to this day, an extremely good listener. And so I just went there to kind of observe and to learn and try to understand the family dynamics and what made them work, what kind of things that they liked. And it took a while, really. When we were together, this was after we got married, we spent a summer living on the reservation with her aunt. We lived in Iambato, which is about 15 minutes outside of Gallup. And it was there that I was really able to make good observations and create relationships. And there were some things that were a little difficult. But in the end of the day, I found that those were some of the happiest times of my life. I realized that a lot of the things that I thought that I needed, I didn't really need so much. And the best part of it was being so close to a family. I think one of the differences between many white families in the United States and Navajo family is that they don't make much distinction between cousins and brothers and sisters, or great aunts and uncles and grandparents. And so when I was living there with Frina's cousins, they treated us more like brothers and sisters. And I feel like that's still the relationship that we have to this day. For me to kind of experience that, I kind of thought, wow, I feel like a little bit better connected with some of her family now than I even do some of my extended relations. With that in mind, you two have gone on and have kids of your own. How exactly are you incorporating some of these habits and traditions that come from both of your respective cultures as you develop your own culture with the two of you and your own family? That's where it takes a lot of attention and effort that I'm still asking myself every day. I think the main priority for us is we want our children to know their family. And that can be hard because we did decide when I did meet Brian, a big part of it too, was I was the type of person who knew, had a very clear vision of what I wanted to pursue in terms of a life career as a academic and educator. Even growing up young, I realized there was so much I needed to learn that I wasn't learning at school. And then I realized I want to teach others and specifically about 
Native American and marginalized peoples. For a while, I was interested in African history too. And I still am because of connections of settler colonialism and colonization and those histories. So I told Brian on our early dates, I told him, yep, I want to get a PhD. I want to do this. I want to... I think he did tell me, he said, oh, she doesn't want to get married. Is that like the thought that came in your head? <laughs> well, she or just, yeah, I mean, <laughs> she didn't have her bachelor's degree at the time. And then suddenly this barrage of, I want to do this, 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 this. I'm going to get a PhD and I'm going to become an academic. And it was just a lot of information <laughs> to process because I grew up in a, with a mother in the house. She took care of us and my dad worked. And Freena also grew up in a house like that. How exactly would one balance all of this with potential my career, with potential children, children, and also just moving around the country? That just sounds kind of crazy. That's a part of academia, to go get your degree, to go do a postdoc, go where there's a job. And uh, I guess... For a couple moments, I kind of thought, is that something I really want to get into? And I wasn't really sure about it, but I, I still wanted to have a relationship with Freena. So I just had to very quickly reimagine the future. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's really shaped these aspects of culture, too, because I did have a dream of wanting to go back at least closer to Navajo Nation, especially where I have strong ties with family. And I wanted to work with Navajo and Native American community and have my family close and immersed in that and connected with that. The way things are and looking for positions as a professor, life takes us on these other twists and turns. And there came an opportunity that was not elsewhere to come to Northeastern State University, which I found applying to the job was a historic institution founded by the Cherokee Nation, very unique in its connection to Native American and Indigenous studies and communities located at the Cherokee Nation headquarters. And for me, measurably close enough to my family and Brian's family but yet still outside of next door per se. But we had on our path, we have been taking our family ever since we got married. What we moved how many times? Yeah, we got married, in, but then we moved uh, since then to Madison, Wisconsin, to Orem, Utah, to Phoenix, Arizona, to Vermont, to Dallas, and now to, to and now to Oklahoma. Our first child was born in Madison, and so he's lived everywhere. Our oldest son has been to about 47 states so far. It's just been very hectic as far as traveling. Mm -hmm. But I feel like good relationships compromise. I think that's just part of life. And so she's told me this dream of hers that she wanted to get a PhD. And then once I was on board with it, which probably took maybe a week or so, I, it hit me that that's a really good idea. Later on, she said there's a couple of schools that she wanted to teach on, on the Navajo reservation. And the problem is that in these locales, they don't really have good education for children, elementary schools. And it's very far. We've had to make compromises and say, look, we're going to try to find a community where we can 
not have to worry about sending our kids to boarding school or traveling an hour on a bus for schooling, which is a major concern of mine. It's really hard to meet all these factors and decisions when you decide you're going to be with someone and what works for everyone. And for me, in this question that you began with, I want my children to know their family, know their heritage, know that they are citizens of Navajo Nation, and I am, and we are a part of the Navajo Nation. And coming to Oklahoma, it's a place where it's not unusual to meet Native Americans. It's a strong presence of people who have these strong, sovereign, indigenous identities. And it also was a place that door opened and the opportunity was there for us to connect with, work with Native American community. And for me, students and faculty and as a scholar and Brian as well, who is very much an intellectual and my intellectual partner and the connections and and the kind of support that he has and does. I don't want to say that door is closed because of X, Y, Z and and even what Brian says about it. It sometimes makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. And he wasn't necessarily fully open to coming here at first either. But then he's open to learning and and growing from these opportunities we have. And that's a part of the journey is having these adventures together and, and learning on the go, doing the best we can. But something we always remind each other is people. And I think that's a common value is respecting humanity, respecting souls and trying to learn the best we can in a respectful an almost reverent way. And even being here, many of our associates and friends who are Native American, they're Cherokee, and it's very different from Navajo. Our children are making friends with Cherokee, and they're being influenced. We're showing them as well, learning about Cherokee history and those dynamics. But then I'm trying to also balance teaching them, this is how Navajo and Navajo connection. And then We go regularly to Navajo Nation, and my parents have since moved to the Navajo Nation. Our children being young, this is where their sponges are really sucking in in things, and they know that's Che. They're learning their clans. That's very important among Navajo is knowing your clan, your family. That's our people, and that we are Kia'ani. And they know that that's our towering house people clan. And and Brian knows that too. And being in this space, it's actually teaching us more to value our Native American identity as a family. And even if Brian knows there's people here will say, I'm adopted into this tribe who are white settler descent. And they grow and connect very closely to certain peoples and communities, indigenous communities. Well, Brian's clear that he knows he comes from white privilege background, though he doesn't like to say that. He's clear saying that I'm not Native American, but he is our Native family, if that makes sense. It's a part of he knows his children are and that I am. And maybe I, I shouldn't be speaking for you, but I feel like that. In our relationship, we're learning a lot about these identities as Native American family. What does that mean in this modern day and age and the culture? Because to be honest with your question, what it reminds me of is uh, with Brian's family and culture, people see that as like, they call it mainstream 
white American dominant. And as a historian, I see these dynamics of who gets to decide what's taught in the school. Who gets to decide what we say in that Pledge of Allegiance that is standardized? What's the standard? What's the status quo? What's the permeating influence? And Brian comes from a family who they were a part of determining that. We're a part of having a voice in American politics and legislation where I come from a people who were denied the right to vote in this country till the 1950s and not that long ago. And the experiences, my dad and his side. Now on my mom's side of the family, I relate as well. I think that helps us to connect too, even though our parents had very different upbringing too. And actually, I think Brian has more cultural differences with my mother, like to be honest, big differences more with her. So that's interesting how it's not all like oh, we're both from white settler background, that that's going to be the same either. It's it's very different of, of what region, um, what values that family came from. And we're chiseling, we're forming who we are. We know we inherit and are influenced by how we were born and the people we are tied to. But then we know we're different too, that like our children, they're different from us. They are not the same uh, as we are. And they're growing up in a very different situation than us. And we're coming to be a constant process of shaping and who we are. And But we have that star of hope that it's love, a real pure love. I am a little curious, Brian. I'm Brina, you were talking about how Brian is about as accepted into the culture and basically as he can be. But Brian, you still are coming from a position of an outsider. Is that ever difficult? I think that uh, if it was difficult, that's mostly past. I think most of the questions usually deal with how much time do we spend with family? How much money do we have to dedicate with family? Because when we go visit the family, because of their living situations, it's really hard to actually get free housing because uh, we end up spending a lot on hotels and that type of thing. And it's balancing these types of things, how much of an investment not just emotionally, but uh, financially, do we put into helping and being supportive of family? And that's always something that you have to kind of learn with. Even if I was out of the equation, Freina would still have to address that situation on her own. And for me to learn all of this, earlier in our marriage, I was a lot more stickler of, we have to be careful how long we're there. And now we just kind of play it as we go. And I think we found a good balance of loving and supporting family where we can, even though we live far away. I don't know. I think it just kind of naturally evolved over time. He starts to plan for it. He just knows this is what we're going to prepare for. (laughs) You know, it's not like, oh, this is going to go away. We're not going to connect to them. And, And that's still something like we talk about a lot because a big tradition of my family is they will gather in the summer. And Brian was just telling me, I'm amazed how your family gathers like that. You know, just my family doesn't do that. Her grandfather was born in the 1800s, in the 1890s. And because of that, that family still likes to come together. At that point, that's more of like my great grandparent um, generation. They don't come together anymore. That family reunion tradition is gone. But they're 
family still does that. And then they want us to come and Trina volunteers to help a whole lot. And when she says, I'm going to volunteer to help, she means, Brian, I'm volunteering you yeah. to help. So, you know, two, 200 uh, Navajos come together and the white guy does most of the cooking. No, not true. Yeah. But they do tease me that Brian... Like something, this is about our relationship too, is I saw recently this cartoon that went viral of working mothers and the hurdles they have to go through that we carry on us. Laundry, you know, the laundry's in the path, the babies and the cooking and all these things. And that's one thing that I am so grateful for Brian and our relationship is we faced a lot of gender dynamics where people are saying, oh, I'm a working mother, but my husband refuses to cook. And so, I mean, they won't say it that way, but they're the ones expected as women to cook, to take care of the household still. Or they have husbands who refuse to stay home with children. They see it as babysitting, or they have to be fulfilled by working full time and being seen as at least an equal breadwinner or more so all these different dynamics. I've probably put off about eight years of my life and working career, uh, maybe more than that, uh, to be at home with the children. Well, you didn't to, put to it them. off. You're still, you're living. Yeah, but. I'm living. But I'm just saying, <laughs> but you I'm were not at contributing home at, at home working. And I know that for most men, that's not what they would do. And yeah. it came, of course, with its own set of challenges mm-hmm. because she was more secure in what she wanted to do in life. And I had some ideas. And sometimes I feel like I'm still working with that. But because I just fell in love with her vision of what she wanted to do. And I remember a quote that said, no success can compensate for failure in the home. And for me, I just know in our family, I wanted to make sure to have happy kids. I wanted to make sure that our children liked each other as friends, not just as brothers and sisters. I wanted to make sure that they had a safe place to come home. I wanted to make sure that they knew that they were loved and appreciated. And that would be extremely hard for me to do if I was working full time. That was a challenge, but it's one that I don't regret at all. Mm -hmm. And our children are absolutely fabulous. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of attribute that to our planning to make sure that they had a safety net at home. It was a balance. I'm not saying still as a working mother, I feel like these pressures, unlike others, the ongoing debate of the woman who has it all or I'd often be called, wow, Frina, you're a superwoman because you have kids and you're working and involved in academia and all these things. And what really hit me, though, is I said, no, it really is my partnership with Brian that makes this possible is having a supportive father who embraces that fatherhood as he's the father and a caretaker, too. And it's this partnership, we are doing the best to be in sync and to collaborate, to work together, to be on the same page. And sometimes there's those days where we're not, where we both think we need to both do more and X, Y, Z, but we're willing to cool down every now and then and, and listen and try and figure things out, go to the drawing table. 
whenever we have to. But I've been amazed. There's things, even things that he can't do. He was supportive with me when I wanted to breastfeed. And I had classes, I was working. So he would drive over to campus and bring the babies for me to breastfeed or different things like that, that would take effort from me that I could see other colleagues without children, especially male colleagues couldn't understand what was it like to breastfeed or to try and balance breastfeeding and meeting and and Brian trying to help me navigate that the best he could. Yeah. So there's those dynamics that as a working mother, I still face, but with Brian's help, it just was a lot more doable. I can't imagine it without his support of being a family together. That's why I was reminded of all this by his comment of he cooks. He's the primary cook in the house. And it's just even shocking to me how often people go to the idea that a woman is the only one who knows how to cook and the mother always cooks and I'll invite guests over for dinner because I love planning and being a hostess. But actually, I don't, I don't really cook at all. And, you know, they'll thank me. And I always have to say no, it was Brian. And people who know us, they know he is an amazing chef and does a lot at home. And my own family, they know that too. Like he's the one who really is great at cooking and catering. That's something that many people, they're changing their assumptions about. We've been very blessed One of the things that's really worked for our family is that academia is family-friendly. Every career has its challenges. Mm -hmm. But uh, overall, even in Freena's most busy of busiest times, she's only ever been on campus for maybe six, seven, eight hours a day. And then she comes home. And maybe she'll bring some of the homework back at home with us. But a lot of her books and articles that she's writing, I'm able to help a little bit, whether it's editing or whether it's talking about it, talking about it, whether it's checking references. Yeah, checking checking the the bibliographies or things that's not necessarily writing per se, but looking at references. That's something that overall she can be present in the home with children. And the children know her probably even better than I knew my dad as a kid because she's always here. Yeah. Whereas my dad worked normal hours. We, yeah. we He was gone for 10 hours a yeah. day. And me with too. With commuting, you know. Commuting in, in D.C. usually added a, a couple hours when we were small. She can see the kids off or to school. And then she's often here when they get back from home um, as well. And we just make sure to do a lot of our grading and other things at night. When they're asleep. (laughs) Yeah, when they're asleep. And it works for us. We're very happy right now with this balance that we have in the home. A recurring theme that I'm really seeing is being able to take the situation that you have and make it work to get the most out of life that you want without necessarily ignoring those challenges, but by working around them. Working to wrapping up, I just have a few questions left for you then. What's a terrible piece of relationship advice that you've heard before? I think that especially in our church circles, they say things like, go on a date every week, no matter what. That was good marriage advice maybe when, when we didn't have kids. But when you have kids, that's awful advice. I think you just need to do something special and make sure to commit time <laughs> to each other. Another one, happy wife happy life. I much like happy spouse, happy house. 
ultimately, when I'm happy, she's happy. And when she's happy, I'm happy. And I think when you work together, no partner is greater than the other. And I think that she has always respected me with that. And I appreciate that as an amazing ability to recognize what I am doing. And I am very grateful for that. If I feel like she's wrong and I have to correct her, she might be mad for a couple minutes, but in the end, she'll apologize when she needs to. I hate that old relationship where the woman's right 100% of the time, the man's wrong 100% of the time, and then uh, he just has to fix himself until he sees things her way. And she's been more understanding, and she has absolutely loving and understanding spirits that makes our relationship work. In terms of marriage advice, one of the worst things I heard was actually when I was having a really hard time in our marriage and someone just said, well, let him do whatever. (laughs) Let him do whatever he's got to do or something. I mean, I'm I'm not going to go into details because it is very private and personal to me. But I think um, it just was the context of Things will just flow one way and that's just how it's going to be. And I know I, I have to find balance. There is truth in that kind of comment and advice of we can't control everything. And I am a control freak. I really want to control things. I think a lot of us do personally. We wish we had that magic power to let things go the way we want it to. And we want in hard moments for our spouse to just snap our fingers and do exactly what we wanted. For me, be careful not to scapegoat my spouse because when I hurt, I often lash out at people and not recognize my own faults or my own issues. It's a lot of balance, like finding that sweet balance of not letting things just pass over and not. I need to talk to my spouse about what's bothering me and say, these are things that I do value and and they need to be met. How do we do this? But I also can't control him or force him. That's what's beautiful in the relationship is actually that we are different and we have to have that balance of what we share in common, how we are alike and drawn to each other, but also that were different and beautiful. And and he sees things that I don't. And I see things that he doesn't at first. And we are becoming stronger. We each are through that. The next question, you both have have brought this up to some extent. What's also just a really great piece of relationship advice you've either received before or could share? It was advice that I wasn't actually fond of at first. I was like, no, I don't like it. But then... (laughs) Because again, it was it was a hard time where someone said, you need to show him what you appreciate about him. You know, you can't just assume he knows. I would subconsciously or unconsciously think that he should be able to read my mind. And if he didn't, he failed because he didn't guess right. And he's doing it wrong and making the assumption that he should have like that should have. That's right. I think a lot of relationships like to the play the game. Can you think what I'm thinking? And if you can't, then I'm going to get angry. 
well, it's and it's failed. It's failed relationship. It's not meant to be, and mm-hmm. you're somebody off. And but you're not usually, off. it's just a better idea to talk. <laughs> tell tell them what's bothering you. Well, I, in that case, I, I'm not even just thinking about what's bothering. I think it also came in the case of giving him positive reinforcement, so that it's not always like. I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong. I hear that actually with advice with children. And I think it's something about relationships is people need positive reinforcement. And that was one of the best advice I heard too. And Brian actually gave it is how do we say like, how do we avoid saying don't, don't, don't and say do, 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 or not even just commands, right? Beyond commands, but say, wow, like, thank you. I appreciate what you did for this. Like having that gratitude, attitude of gratitude, that's what drew me to Brian in the first place is uh, so many strengths and recognizing the good he has. He has that, I think, longing for appreciation. We all do. But sometimes he'll be like, didn't you see what I did today? (laughs) And I'm like, oops, I didn't. Someone said, even if you just write a note of recognizing what you liked about what he did or just saying thank you. And it doesn't have to be so formal all the time. I think it's also a mindset of look for the positivity and recognize and respect the positive things they're doing. So I don't do that as much as I should, but I do it a lot more since following that advice. And it helps me as well to say, wow, we are doing things that are good and And we need to have this reciprocity and support and acknowledgement of our strengths. But along, you know, the weaknesses, they'll always be there. (laughs) But I think we we sometimes just assume you don't have to praise or whatever. And some cultures, actually, that's a big thing is not to make it shallow by just praising and frivolous things or whatever. But just showing you appreciate them. It doesn't have to just be in word. It can be in other ways. I'll add, be slow to anger and uh, give the benefit of a doubt. And there's certainly lots of times where I've just been very angry at something that Freena may have done or said or whatever. And I think at the end of the day, the question is, do I love her? And the answer is yes. Do I know that she's a good person? The answer is yes, I know she's more than that. She's a fabulous person, and like me, she has weaknesses. But her strengths far, in my opinion, far outweigh her weaknesses. And I found that most relationships or most fights can resolve themselves, but not till you've cooled down a bit. To just be slow to anger, usually things come out. So I'll recognize that maybe in a a fight or such, maybe I was actually part of the problem sometimes (laughs) (laughs) and uh, not too often, (laughs) but uh, otherwise I think that that's just good advice just to be slow to get angry. You realize that at the end of the day, her intentions or my intentions are always good. And when you love each other, I think that's the case. And, you have time to patch things up, but once things cool down, that's usually when we fix things. I think that's a big part of what he said of we're very fortunate. We're in a healthy, loving relationship because we have those good intentions in our heart that we're both just trying to be 
the best we can be and we're learning how we can help each other to do that. And then on my last question for both of you, I'd just like to invite both of you to share what it is that you love about the other one. She is one of the most giving people I've ever met. And I'm grateful for that. She gives herself. She gives, she gives, she likes to buy presents and things. She gives them to everybody. Actually, I don't even get a whole lot of the presents because I know that I don't really need them. I'm not a gift giver. So if she doesn't give me anything, I don't care. But one of the, my favorite things, even just today, she made sure to buy presents for all of our kids' teachers for Christmas because it's uh, almost Christmas. She said, should we give a gift to our son's coach? I would never think that. That's just not even on my radar. Last year, she gave presents to secretaries at at school. She gave to pretty much every single faculty got something because she has this absolutely generous giving heart. We have art at the house and she'll just give it all away. She, uh, you know, things that we pick up from the reservation. And sometimes I almost have to say, hey, we should keep that one around. And then the next day it's gone. (laughs) But I love that about her, that she would give the sweater off her back if that was needed. And I've just completely fallen in love with that uh, time after time. I've just never met somebody as loving specifically in that regard. What I love about Brian, uh, I think what won me over is that he is very patient. He helped me to kind of understand patience in a different way is that I saw myself always, and I still do, as a very impatient person because I thought, oh, patient, why do we have to wait? Why do we have to wait? And I see him, I see strength in his patience, his advice, you know, slow to anger. He really is that type of person who's calm and like a stone on the river. That river can rush past him, be really hard, but he's very resilient. He stays there. He's consistent, but at the same time, he's also changing and and learning. And in that way, he's very loving and so supportive and strong, has his own strength that just shines. And I'm learning from that. I'm learning from how he's patient with his thoughts and shapes them and forms them and the way that he thinks you know, before talking more than me. <laughs> and he is tactful and thoughtful about what he says or, or tries to be. And that was always something that really drew me in is, is his gift with words and thoughts. And I realized it does take that certain kind of patience and, and intellect and just how bright he is of how he knows random things about a lot of things. And I love it. Like he's like my little encyclopedia I call up. and he's willing to share that knowledge. And he just has a way of talking that it's like a natural gift of teaching and reaching people when they're willing to sit down and, and have a conversation with him, you know, that they can, learn from him and he can learn from them. And I think it takes that strong patience that he has to seek to understand the environment, seek to understand the people who he's with and do the best he can to sympathize and empathize with people. I really drew to appreciate and love. 
Well, that wraps it up today. Special thanks again to Brian and Farina for being with us. And a big thanks to all of you for tuning in to this first episode of our season two of Making Love Today. Be sure to tune in next week for our follow-up episode where Anne and I discuss all of the wonderful things that Brian and Farina demonstrated in their relationship. If you want to learn more about what we do here at Rekindle, please go ahead and check out our website at makinglovetoday.com and follow us on Instagram at rekindle.love.today. That wraps it up for today, and until next time, I hope that we can all be like Brian and Farina and go out and make love in our lives.